This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome back to BIEB 152, Evolution of Infectious Diseases. Uh, this is lecture number 16. This lecture is on influenza evolution. Uh, this is the fun part of the course. I mean, I, I obviously love the full course, but um, we have gotten through the hardest material and the hardest concepts and the um, uh, hardest new types of analyses to, to go over. Uh, and so now we get to um, apply everything that we learned in the previous lectures uh, to understanding specific infectious diseases. So today's will be influenza, then we move on to HIV, and then we uh, go back to SARS-CoV-2. Um, hopefully there's new data on its evolution that I can lecture on. So um, yeah, this is where we're getting near the end of the course, um, and I hope you've enjoyed it so far. Okay, so let's, uh, let's dive into the, the actual slides this, this time. Let's now move on to taking the temperature on COVID-19. So on Thursday, I digressed a second in the middle of the lecture to talk about how funding was removed from EcoHealth Alliance, the group that we've talked about twice now in our lectures, because I think that they do the best research or some of the best research at um, predicting where new pandemics may arise and uh, what types of viruses may cause uh, new pandemics. I really like their work. I followed it for years um, as I've taught this class uh, and their funding was just uh, taken away. Um, and uh, it turns out that right after I gave that lecture and made that comment, uh, 77 Nobel laureates uh, wrote the US government to tell them that that was a problem and that this is good research and that they shouldn't uh, do that. After that, 31 scientific societies also wrote a letter to the NIH uh, to make that request. I also saw a link online uh, for a 60 minutes it, uh, segment on this. Uh, that was over the weekend as well. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I think that this was a mistake by the government and I am glad that this issue is receiving attention. Uh, we need this kind of research not to stop the current pandemic because that's obviously underway, but to predict the next pandemic. Okay, um, hydroxychloroquine is a controversial therapeutic that was proposed to be effective against, um, against COVID-19. We talked about it. We talked about the data that was positive for hydroxychloroquine. Then we later talked about how there is um, data from the United States. The original data was from France. Now there's data from the United States in VA hospitals that suggests that uh, it can actually be dangerous in increased death rates. Um, and so now there's another study uh, out uh, published in The Lancet. This was on Friday, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, and it shows, and this is a large, a very large sample size of people, it shows that uh, the death rate caused by COVID-19 is almost doubled when patients are given hydroxychloroquine. So until doctors can figure out why this is happening, I would not take hydroxychloroquine. Um, if you have COVID-19 and your doctor suggests to, um, just ask them you know, what the most current data is and why they think you should take it. So uh, this, is, this, was, uh, this study was uh, so troubling that the WHO halted hydroxychloroquine trials um, in, in other studies in other parts of the world. Okay. So that's that, um, and I think I'm like the, the harbinger of bad news today, so sorry about that. Uh, maybe on Thursday we'll, we'll go back to uh, therapies at work and, and progress on, on vaccines. Uh, but the other thing that I've talked a lot about is whether or not there's going to be a summer effect for SARS-CoV-2. And so uh, that, what, what I mean by summer effect is that the climate may change in a way, so higher temperatures and higher humidity, so that it's harder for the virus to spread. Um, and so there was a paper that I hadn't seen uh, that was published on May 18th that um, investigated whether or not, given what we know about SARS-CoV-2, uh, 
if there will be a summer effect and if that summer effect will be strong enough to um, overcome the fact that we are stopping a lot of our social distancing and our sheltering in place and things are opening up again. And the verdict from, from these epidemiologists is that there should be a small summer effect, but that that effect is going to be overwhelmed by the increase of uh, susceptible people interacting with infected people. And uh, that increase is, is probably going to lead to a resurgence of, of the disease in the summer. I was hoping that we would have some relief over the summer, that the, the abiotic conditions, would their, their negative effect on the spread of the disease would be so strong that it would be unlikely to spread as fast in the summertime and we'd have some kind of relief and be able to um, go out in public and not worry about the disease. Uh, but I think given this result, we really do have to continue to worry about the disease. And so just thinking about this result in, in the context of the course, we learned about SIR models. And basically what, what this result is saying is that we have so many susceptible people that there's a lot of interactions between when, when a person is infected, they end up, end up interacting with a lot of susceptible people and they can spread it very easily. And that, yes, there's a little bit of a muffling caused by higher humidity or higher temperatures. And even sunlight is known to kill off on the, the SARS-CoV-2 particles. But, you know, this effect is not large enough given how many interactions there, there are predicted to be between infected people and susceptible people. We just have a huge population that can catch this disease and spread it. And so the, the SIR models are predicting that uh, no matter how much we impact the beta, the ability for the infection to spread, there's just so much opportunity for spread that it's, it's going to keep going. So I hope that this epidemiological model is wrong, um, but I just wanted to add this. This is the newest thinking on um, the summer effect and whether or not we're gonna have relief during the summer. Um, and I have been optimistic, and so I wanna just give you the sort of counter to that optimism in that we, we do have to still think about this. We can't sort of blindly go into the summer um, and uh, start going to bars and so forth uh, without any caution. Well, that was checking the temperature. Uh, we'll actually get into the, the course material now. Sorry that I don't have better news, uh, but we all have to be realistic. This is going, this is going to transform our lives for, for the, a long time until we get a vaccine. So, okay. Evolution of Infectious Disease, BIEB 152, lecture number 16, Influenza Evolution. So we are all familiar with flu or influenza, um, but let's just sort of go through some of the details of, of this virus. It's a rep respiratory infection. It in infects mammals and birds. So this is like coronaviruses in that um, it is adapted to warm-blooded animals. Um, and it's like coronavirus in that it, it spreads between lots of different hosts. That's what we went over uh, in the last lecture. Um, but we also, like the coronavirus, we have a seasonal flu. So coronaviruses, we have, uh, there's multiple common colds that are caused by coronaviruses. Um, and so we have this, this infection that is specialized on humans. And during the wintertime, uh, we tend to get infected by it. Uh, and it spreads globally around the world. Uh, and this is similar to the, the common colds caused by coronavirus. There's a yearly epidemic. It's a major source of human and livestock mortality. It is an RNA virus. This is like the coronavirus as well. Uh, there are three major types, A, B, and C, determined by two internal proteins. Don't worry about that. The typical flu is type A. Uh, which is divided into many subtypes using H number, N number nomenclature. And so, you know, you've heard H1N1, uh, H3N2. Uh, there's a bunch of different uh, strains that are all characterized by this HN numbers. And so here is the structure of influenza and a little bit more about the taxonomy, that H and N number. So, uh, you know, this is many characteristics uh, seem very similar actually to coronaviruses. Uh, you, have this, uh, you have this outer membrane that has the, the genetic 
uh, material uh, stored in influenza particle. Uh, you have these things. These are like the, the spike protein in coronavirus. This is the HA protein. Um, and just like uh, the spike protein in coronavirus, this thing is what uh, gloms onto the outer membrane receptor. So that's a protein in the host that uh, the virus binds to and then triggers an infection. And so it uses this HA protein. Um, and the HA protein is also tends to be the target of the immune system when we develop resistance to, to influenza. And so that, that makes sense. And this is the same logic for why uh, the spike protein is being used to create vaccines for the coronavirus in that the HA protein is protruding off of the, the particle. It's a sort of big target for the immune system to be able to recognize and then attack. And so that's the H number just refers to a variant of um, the, the H protein. And the N number is another protein that's on the, on the membrane of the, the particle as well. What is really interesting about influenza is that it has multiple copies of some of its chromosomes and you actually have the, the genome that is segmented into these different chromosomes. So a little bit different structure um, than coronavirus that we've looked at in detail. Uh, the other thing is its genome is smaller. It has a 13.5 kilobase genome uh, than coronavirus. Okay, so the flu life cycle. Uh, it has airborne transmission. Uh, we all know that. Uh, the infection takes about one to three days before becoming contagious. Then the infection period is about three to six days, and the duration of the infection is about two to seven days uh, in, in total. And so uh, humans develop immunity from influenza. So, you know, once you get sick, as long as everything goes right, your immune system uh, will develop uh, antibodies against influenza. And so you will you will be healed and you won't be able to be infected by that strain of influenza again. And so just thinking about influenza in the context of the SIR model that we learned about, um, airborne transmission means that it has a high beta. You know, this thing can spread and it spreads around the world every single year. Um, this duration of infection, this is the, the RE or the, the one divided by the infection duration. Um, and so uh, duration of infection is, you know, relatively short, so people recover very quickly. Um, so that does reduce the, the ability of um, influenza to spread. Uh, it has low virulence, uh, so people do die from influenza, but on average, people recover. Um, and so that low virulence actually does help it spread. The last thing to note in, with respect to the model is that we actually do recover, and so that means that we have this DRDT uh, equation. So this is just so that you can understand influenza, its r naught value, and these different variables that go into producing its r naught value, value, and why influenza actually spreads um, each year. And so the r naught value is somewhere between 0 0.9 and 2.1. Given you know, that this is uh, uh, teetering on a value of one, uh, if more people around the world got the vaccine and we could push this r naught value down even lower, we would not have as bad of seasonal flu seasons, and maybe we could even drive the virus uh, to extinction. It does seem kind of hard, because we'll go over later uh, in this lecture about how it evolves, and it evolves very rapidly. And so it might always be difficult to, to keep up with its evolution with our vaccines and given how relatively slow our pace of creation of vaccines is. Um, but uh, it would be, you know, we, we could really significantly impact this disease and the spread of it by having uh, more people get the seasonal flu vaccine. Okay, so this is just a summary of these sort of different values. Um, but basically, the R0 is above one because it's easy to spread the flu, it's not that virulent, and so it can spread you know, around the globe like it does. So uh, I guess I wanted to say that uh, the flu burden is pretty high. Uh, so 
it is a, a major global health threat, um, and it causes a lot of uh, mortality each year. And so what we're looking at here is just a graph where we have uh, time on the x-axis and on the y-axis we have uh, deaths per 100,000 people per year. Um, and so this is the top line is just all deaths recorded. Um, and the bottom line is deaths due to infectious diseases. Um, and so we can, and so what we can t- see is that, you know, a lot of the trend and the change in total deaths per year is actually being caused by um, our ability to treat infectious diseases and the fact that fewer people die from infectious diseases nowadays. And so there are a couple different trends here, um, but some of this signal in this line down here is uh, due to mortality caused by influenza. Um, so the biggest signal that you can see and the, the most dramatic um, aspect of this graph is this crazy influx of deaths due to infectious diseases. And that is caused by this 1918 flu pandemic that people are comparing our current pandemic to. Um, and so there was a massive increase in the number of people that died because of influenza that year. And then it sort of after, after people gained immunity to that strain of influenza, then it, the rate of mortality caused by infectious diseases went back to normal levels. Um, this overall drop in the, the mortality caused by infectious diseases is actually due to better hospitalization and, and medicine, but, but a lot of it's due to the creation of antibiotics. And so now, you know, relatively very few people die from infectious diseases, but, you know, you wonder what this pattern is going to look like in 2020. I mean, there is going to be another spike due to this novel coronavirus. So that, that'll be kind of depressing to see. And also, if this slumping down is due to antibiotics, um, into the future, antibiotic resistance is going to elevate that line unless we can find better antibiotics or better ways to use antibiotics. Okay, so not to be giving you guys all bad news all the time, sorry. But yeah, these are, these are the patterns, and you know this really dramatic pattern is caused by influenza, and some of these deaths here are caused by influenza. The seasonal flu uh, spreads around the world. Uh, the strains typically originate um, in India and China. Um, you know, these are just huge centers of people and people living at very high densities. And so strains originate there and then spread around the world. Uh, But you can see that uh, there's also these sort of double arrows uh, between North America and Europe and South America and so forth. And so it's not it's not as simple as saying it originates in one place and then spreads around the globe. Um, It actually does uh, transfer around and it mutates and evolves. Uh, And so the flu is always kind of in flux around the world. And it's seasonal, and so it tends to uh, follow the winter time, and so it follows these sort of different regions of the world, um, bouncing around to different countries from the northern hemisphere down to the southern hemisphere. So here are monthly flu dynamics for uh, the United States. So we're going to focus on the United States now and look at the, the dynamics. This is, to, to a scientist, when you see this repeatable of a pattern of these fluctuations up and down in such a very dramatic dynamic. It's really compelling because it's like, it's so repeatable that this is something uh, that you can study and you want to understand what's, what's controlling these cycles up and down. And so the Y axis here, I should point out the P and I is pneumonia and influenza. Uh, So these are deaths due to diseases that are like influenza. These are deaths that could also be caused by other uh, illnesses as well. Uh, So not all of these cases are diagnosed as certainly being caused by influenza, uh, but the majority probably are. And so what I'm showing you here is a zoomed in graph of this. So this y-axis is huge so that it can accommodate um, this large spike due to the flu pandemic. And then, but if we want to really get better resolution to what's happening down here, we can zoom in. That spike is here, so you can see it's chopped off, and we can see that there's these annual fluctuations, and we can see that you know these fluctuations are not as extreme anymore, and that's in part due to better medicine and also developing a seasonal flu vaccine. Okay, 
so now I just want to get into a little bit more uh, fine scale data about these fluctuations and talk a little bit about the seasonality of, of influenza and the, the strains that cause uh, seasonal flu. Let's just sort of walk through these new graphs down here. Starting with this graph, what we're doing here is we're combining uh, different types of data and testing whether or not we the, the different types of data line up with each other, uh, suggesting that what we are mapping um, in this first graph and all of the rest of the graphs uh, is actually instances of flu and how flu fluctuates uh, from one year to the next. And so remember, what the, the line is, is weekly USA P&I deaths. And so we think that that tells us something about influenza, but you know, it's, it's combining pneumonia and influenza deaths together. And you know, we, we have to be a little skeptical of, of such a rough um, estimate, but we can look to other types of data, data that tends to be a little bit harder to gather. And we can see that there's a strong correlation between that data. And so one bit of data is actually just number of flu cases. And so I, I know that I've had the flu in the past, uh, but I've never had myself tested for influenza. And so I'm sure that's true for most people. And so that means that this red uh, line is a underestimate of how much the prevalence of, of influenza. Um, but Hopefully that underestimate is the same through time and doesn't change and so that we can see these spikes in the numbers and that tells us roughly when flu season is when it's spreading around the United States. The yellow is ILI is influenza-like illnesses. Um, and so this is just uh, another way of doctors recording their observation of seeing influenza-like illnesses. And so what we see is that that reporting and then these actual positive tests for flu cases, um, as well as these sort of fluctuations in uh, deaths caused by PNI uh, diseases, uh, those all line up and they indicate that in fact these yearly fluctuations that we're seeing uh, are being caused by the, the seasonal flu. The question is, uh, you know, are these annual fluctuations, are they driven by changes in the season, or is this some other kind of natural cycling that's happening? Now, because it's so regular and it's always in wintertime, it strongly uh, supports this idea that um, it is driven by changes that happen during the wintertime. But you do want some kind of point of comparison in order to rule out the other hypothesis that some other thing is driving these seasonal fluctuations. And so, and that's not just winter, it's just that this is a natural periodicity of the spread of influenza. And so one thing that you can do is you can say, okay, well, it spreads in the winter in the UK and in, in North America. Um, does it also spread in the winter in Australia? Or is Australia, who is very linked to the UK, do they experience the same fluctuation at the same time? And that would tell you that some other driver uh, was causing the seasonal fluctuations. Um, but in fact, you see that the fluctuation in Australia is exactly off um, from the fluctuation in the UK. And so is their seasons, of course, northern versus southern hemisphere. And so that comparison tells us that, no, 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 there's something unique about what happens with people in the winter uh, that allows influenza to spread more widely. And so then the last figure is uh, information where enough testing has been done that we can pinpoint um, what is the exact strain of influenza that is spreading. And so I said that there's three sources of seasonal influenza. There's H1N1, H3N2, and B. And so you could, you could ask yourself, are seasonal flus, are they always caused by, say, H3N2? Um, or sometimes is in, in that these other flu types are just kind of hanging out low levels uh, in the human population, but not causing much of mortality or infection. Or do you get different flus rising during uh, different years? And that's in fact what we see. 
is that sometimes it's B, sometimes it's H3N2. That seems like a very dominant strain uh, for the years that are in the graph. But there are also other strains where it's H1N1. So that is part of what makes influenza so difficult uh, to deal with is because we have these three major different groups of seasonal flu that are spreading, and we're never really sure which one is going to emerge the next year. So uh, if you are interested in influenza, there are a lot of resources online, just like we've been going over with uh, coronavirus. And uh, you can actually look at these maps that track the spread of influenza uh, across the United States. Um, where is the seasonal flu worse? Um, in San Diego, we tend to get the seasonal flu later than much of the, the rest of the country. Uh, and so you can actually uh, track that uh, week by week uh, using these resources. Okay, so the question is, what's driving the season, seasonality of the seasonal flu? And so there's lots of different hypotheses. And I think in general, we haven't settled on a single explanation, but it's actually a combination of explanations that leads to uh, these seasonal dynamics. Um, so first off, one thing is just human behavior. Uh, schools are in session in the wintertime. Uh, schools have high densities of students, uh, so high densities of people interacting with each other, and uh, they become these hubs to, of spreading disease. So you have basically more of these SI interactions. And then the other characteristics are based on abiotic, so environmental uh, environmental influences. So you have less light. Oh, I'm sorry. Before we get into environmental influences, this is caused by environment, um, but it's this interesting environment by human interaction. So the first one is human behavior. The second one is an environment by human interaction. And then the last two are just direct environmental effects. Um, and so this is interesting. When you have less light, you have less vitamin D, D, and that will impact your immune system. And so you can imagine that if humans are sort of having these annual fluctuations of how healthy on average their immune systems are, then there might be in these like low periods where there's not much light, slightly less healthy immune systems, that might be a time where the disease can get a foothold. And so that's, that's pretty interesting. I, I bet that that in, uh, impact is, is very subtle, and, but it is one of the hypotheses. The other two are direct effects caused by changes in the environment. Um, one, and we've talked about these before, uh, cold conditions, viruses can survive cold conditions better and spread more because they stay longer in the air, they stay longer on surfaces and so forth. Um, and then low humidity in the wintertime uh, caused by the environment, but also caused by heating in buildings um, can enhance the probability that the viruses aerosolize and then enhance their ability to spread throughout the, the air. So, uh, like I said, there's not, there's not a, a, a strong conclusion on which of these is the dominant driver. They all play a role. Uh, and it's unfortunate they all coincide with each other. Just to sort of connect this back to SARS-CoV-2 and what I talked about in the checking the temperature, you know, if, if this is the dominant driver of why flu and why coronaviruses are seasonal and the SARS-CoV-2 is still is still spreading despite the fact that we shut down schools then we're not going to see much of a summertime relief from it because you know we've we've already shut down schools and it's still you know a problem it's still spreading around the United States and causing a lot of mortality and so hopefully you know the the balance between what of these factors are most important is shifted more to these direct abiotic ways of interfering with the viral spread. But I have a feeling that that's, that's not going to do it all. And so did the epidemiologists that we talked about earlier. And it seems that, you know, we should continue to try to social distance to, to stop this virus. Okay. So now let's actually get to influenza evolution. So we have this flu strain. It, 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 we have these multiple flu strains. They cycle each year. Um, and they are also evolving at a pretty high rate. They, they evolve much faster than coronavirus. And 
we have this phrase now called antigenic evolution. Um, and this is an accumulation of mutations in viral genes HA and NA. So these are the proteins that are protruding outside the viral particle. These are the proteins that the immune system detects. And so there's actually a lot of selective pressure on this protein to evolve and change because influenza is an RNA virus without proofreading capabilities. Uh, it has an elevated mutation rate. And so the virus is always generating a lot of new HN variant, variants. Um, and uh, then there's strong selection for to have a unique variant that the immune system is our immune system, human immune systems are unable to recognize. And so th what this does is it drives um, a really strong selection and really strong, uh, really rapid evolution uh, in these proteins. So uh, let's, let's actually get a little bit deeper into the, into the evolution. What we have here is a phylogeny for H3N2. So this is one of the types of seasonal flu. And this is a phylogeny from 1985 to 1995. Um, and so what it's showing here is these, these bars are all indicating different years. And so these strains here were all isolated from the, this year here. Um, there's some overlap between the strains uh, and where they exist in their evolutionary relationship between you know, 1985, 86, 87, 88. And so strains for these four years were all very similar to each other and falling within the same uh, phylogenetic space as each other. So they're all related to each other. Um, but then as you sort of move through time, you can see that strains are diverging. Um, and now 89, they're all clustered together here. And then they give rise to the strain that's circulating in 1990, 1991, 1992. Um, and then there's, there's sort of further tran transitions uh, between the years. And um, so as you move out and you get these more and more divergent strains of influenza, they correspond with the particular year that the strain is isolated from. Uh, and so this is a really interesting pattern where you have this just constant evolution and divergence and change in influenza over time. This, you know, influenza is able to evolve like this uh, and have such rapid changes from one year to the next year because it has a relatively high uh, mutation rate. So uh, this is a mutation rate that was estimated in 2017 using new technology, and it's actually higher than previous mutation rates uh, for influenza. So if you look up the mutation rate for influenza, you have to really see what the source is uh, because it actually might be lower than this one. What we can tell what, from this graph, so this is a graph that I had originally shown you guys uh, to point out where coronavirus is, saying that it has a large genome and it has a lower mutation rate, whereas influenza has a smaller genome uh, and a much, much faster mutation rate. Remember, this is a log scale over here. So just one or two steps increasing actually corresponds to 10 or 100 times uh, increase in the rate. And so influenza is mutating much, much faster than coronavirus. Uh, we're gonna talk about in a second why this high mutation rate for influenza leads to us having to revise the vaccine every year for influenza and so there's a fear that if we get a vaccine for coronaviruses, it'll be like influenza and it won't be that great. And we uh, will have to keep taking it every single year. And I actually don't have that fear. And the reason is because coronavirus has a much lower mutation rate. And so a vaccine that gives you immunity to this year's strain should give you immunity to next year's strain as well. But that's not true for influenza. So when you look at this phylogeny, the most striking pattern of, about this phylogeny, and, and you, you guys haven't looked at you know, that many phylogenies yet, and so this might just look kind of normal, um, but it's not. This is a strange phylogeny in that you have this directionality, right? You don't have lots and lots of branches. You just have this sort of streamlined, you know, this thing is evolving each year and it's diverging. And, you know, you're getting a brand new strain that takes over the population in the following year or the following couple of years. Um, and it's a really, it's a very, very strange pattern. 
So we can actually look at this pattern and think about whether or not this pattern is being driven by drift or natural selection. So if this was a purely neutral, if all of this evolution was driven by just genetic drift and not selection, we wouldn't see such a strong directional pattern. What we'd see is more kind of random branches and less of, less of a pattern. We'd, just, we'd see sort of more just randomness. That makes sense, right? So what researchers can do is they can actually um, build mathematical models that add in random mutations into sequences and let them sort of evolve. So these are just computer simulations and that this is evolution without natural selection and they can look at, well, what's the shape of the phylogeny that's made? And so when you do those kinds of simulations, you get phylogenies that are branch-like, that are more like this, much more like the phylogenies that we've been looking at in the class. But you do not produce a phylogeny like this. And so this, it's called an imbalanced tree, is a sign that non-neutral things are happening. So the non-neutral thing in evolution is natural selection. And so what's happening is that you get these bouts of you know, selection favoring this strain, and it does really well that year, and then it begins to evolve, and then there's a particular strain that does really well, and it gets promoted to the next year, and then it, it sort of begins to diversify and evolve, um, but then there's one particular strain that does really well and spreads around the world and gives rise to the next population of viruses. They begin to mutate and diversify, but then there's a single one that then gives rise to the next year's strain. And so I don't need to keep repeating this, but this is a, a really strong signal of directional natural selection. So just to sort of zoom in and sort of think about what I just went over, um, but in the context of actually looking at details in this phylogeny, what is going on from one year to the next year? And so let's say that we're talking about years 1990 and 1991, and then the sequence of events that leads to the strain that dominates in 1992. So basically, what, what I'm showing you here is uh, just the protein HA. So this is one of the proteins that's under selection by human immune systems. And so this is, it's also called an epitope, the part of an antigen molecule to which an antibody attaches to. So this is an epitope because our antibodies recognize it, attach to it, um, and interfere with viral replication by attaching to it. And so what's happening is that there's a particular epitope that is doing well, spreading around the world. It's dominating in 1990 and 1991. And as it's dominating, it's mutating. And so it is acquiring mutations in its, in its HA gene. But all of these variants are closely related to each other. So they, they create this clade that you can see just in the phylogeny that they're closely related to each other. And so then humans are developing immunity to all of these different variants. Uh, and subvariants. And then there are sort of other variants that are arising um, that are very distinct from all of these yellow ones. And so they begin to acquire unique mutations. These are this, these red mutations. And so this variant will be really rare globally. The yellow one is what's doing well and spreading around the world, but it does exist and it's genetically distinct from, from this variant and from all of these yellow ones. And so it then begins to emerge because people don't have immunity, that these, these red mutations have changed features in the epitope so that the antibodies no longer recognize this protein. And so it then has escaped and it's able to spread now in human populations because they don't have immunity to it. So then it gives rise to a clade. Um, it begins to diversify and mutate as well. And then the same cycle happens again, where another new rare variant uh, emerges later because eventually human immune systems learn to recognize these red mutations. And so that happens from one year to the, the next. And sometimes it's as, as clean as one year to the next. Sometimes it's a little bit muddier where strains will be circulating for a couple years in a row. But overall, you get this pattern caused by the succession 
of one strain giving way to another strain, giving way to another strain, and so forth. And so that high rate of evolution and that pattern of phylogeny is precisely why we have to make flu vaccines each and every year. We have to predict what is this red strain going to be, and we have to stay a step ahead of it to predict when it will uh, begin to spread maybe in North America or so forth. So one question that, that you might be sort of thinking about as you're looking at this is like, well, if, if these are mutating, why, why doesn't sort of this yellow one take off and uh, give rise to the next cycle of uh, seasonal flu? Um, and one of the reasons, uh, certainly if it, if it really diverged very rapidly uh, and acquired lots and lots of mutations, it could. But one of the reasons is that often sort of all of these are genetically related to each other. That's why they're positioned where they are in the phylogenetic tree. They're clumped into a monophyletic group. They're all genetically related to each other. And so um, often if you have resistance to this strain, you also have resistance to that strain, that they're similar enough to each other that you get this cross-resistance. Uh, so your immune system can recognize both of those substrains. And so this one is just genetically distinct enough or has uh, the right mutation in the right place in the protein so that it escapes the immune system and then gives rise to descendants that mount infections all around the world. Okay, so this is an updated phylogeny that I got from Trevor Bedford's website. Uh, so that's a website down here. This lab does amazing stuff with phylogenetics of viruses and is behind a lot of the SARS-CoV-2 figures that I've, that I've shown you guys. And so this is one that they've made for seasonal flu. Uh, I think this is H3N2. I forgot to take that note, um, but it, I think it is. And this is just showing you sort of a, a longer uh, period of time. So more data is in this, this figure. And uh, now we have actual time on the x-axis. The previous one was genetic distance, and it indicated time as those bars on the y-axis. And so now we have time and we have all of these different variants. But what I really love about this figure is that they've built the phylogeny based on genetics, based on RNA sequences. But what they've overlaid is they did uh, lab experiments to figure out, you know, what is uh, the antigen group that a particular virus belongs to. And so what you can see is that the colorations are different antigen groups and so we have, you know, the purple antigen group that's giving rise to the yellow antigen group is giving rise to the green antigen group and also the blue antigen and then the red antigen. But so what is really interesting is that you do, you see this change of one antigen type to another antigen type over time, this really regular pattern in the phylogeny. And so that gives support to that dynamic that I talked about and the fact that the structure and this sort of directional pattern to the, or this imbalanced phylogeny is being caused by the selection against one group and then giving way to a new antigen group. And so all of the data makes sense that this is what's happening and this is what's majorly driving influenza evolution. Uh, just for fun, I guess, this is the molecular clock for influenza, and you can actually see that it is extremely regular, and so the tempo of this evolution is pretty consistent through time. That helps with being able to backdate when different influenza evolutionary events happened. I want to point out that this is very clock-like, not because all of these mutations are neutral mutations, but because whatever accumulation of evolutionary processes, so strong selection and a very regular underlying mutation rate, gives rise to this very regular pattern of nucleotide substitutions per time. Okay, so if we know that this is what's happening underneath the hood of influenza evolution, how do we use this information to develop flu vaccines? And so I'm gonna go over two ways that we develop flu vaccines. And really what I mean is to develop a vaccine, you have to pick a particular strain of influenza that you think is going to be a problem in the future. And so then you develop a vaccine based on your prediction for the future. And so you choose that strain 
and then you develop a vaccine for it, and then you administer that vaccine. And so there are two approaches to picking that strain. Um, there's actually probably more. We're just going to go over two uh, in this lecture. One is what the WHO does. This is the criteria that is used to produce the flu vaccine that you're taking this year and last year, hopefully that you're taking. And then I'm going to talk about a way that we can inform that development of picking a strain and the development of a vaccine, inform it with evolution in order to make a better prediction and to hopefully develop a more effective vaccine. So these are things that hopefully we'll be doing in the future. Okay, so the current strategy uh, done by the WHO, let's just sort of walk through this. Um, so when we create a vaccine uh, for the Northern Hemisphere, we begin to do that in February for the following year. Okay, so we obviously we have to do that ahead of time. And that's, that's why we have to make an educated guess. And sometimes that guess is wrong. Some years, uh, we choose strains that we make vaccines for that don't end up dominating in the Northern Hemisphere. And so that's why the flu vaccine for that year is not as great. The flu vaccine always has some level of providing immunity. And so it is good to get. And if we all get the flu vaccine, even if it's only you know a 30% reduction in your probability of getting influenza, maybe that doesn't mean much to you personally. But if you take that number and you amplify it across the population, it's basically like reducing that beta by 30%. And that could mean the difference of an R0 that is above one and an R0 that is below one. And so, you know, it is important for all of us to get it, uh, to really just reduce the spread of the, the flu, even if that 30% that doesn't seem that major for you personally at a population level, it is major. Okay, so sometimes we get it wrong. Hopefully we improve our techniques to get it right. Uh, but what the WHO does is it looks, or it looks for strains of H1N1, H3N2, and B. Okay, so this is where taxonomy for influenza gets a little bit tricky. So we have these three major strain types. So H1N1, H3N2, and B. And then there's sub-variants of these strains or substrains. You know, people's use and my use of strains is very flexible and we should try to, I should try to be more precise. So I will flip around between calling these three things, three strains, or substrains of them, strains as well. But just when you hear strains, think genetic variants, and there's major genetic differences between H1N1, H3N2, and B. And then there's more subtle genetic variations of H3N2. That's what we were just looking at in that phylogeny. And so there's subvariants of H3N2 that evolve from one year to the next to cause the reemergence of seasonal flu. But some years, it's not just all about H3N2. Some years it's B. Some years it's going to be H1N1. And so this is a really complicated process. And predicting what is going to emerge, is it going to be one of these three broad strains? If it's one of those three, what substrain within them is the one that's going to emerge? So the WHO creates a vaccine that incorporates variants within all three of these, these categories. And the way that they do it is basically what they do is they look at what is spreading in the United States this year. And then they say, okay, well, we're all going to develop immunity to that one. And so any strain that is that one or is very similar genetically to that one, we are going to be immune to because of cross resistance. However, there's going to be other strains that exist somewhere else in the world that are genetically distinct that we won't have cross resistance to. And so those other strains are going to then spread to the United States or spread to North America and cause our next wave of seasonal influenza. And so what they do is basically, you know, they have information about other strains around the world and they find strains that are genetically unique. And so they then say, okay, that's the one that's most likely to spread. And when I say genetically unique, I should say that they use a lot of phenotypic assays to determine uniqueness of strain. And so these are assays where these are 
asking, you know, do human antibodies X, Y, and Z doesn't have any reaction on influenza strain A, B, or C. And so they can say, oh, A and B, you know, have very similar antibody responses, whereas C is unique. Uh, A is spreading this year, and so therefore C is the one that's likely to spread next year. So I like to show you guys data and teach about, you know, these different ways that we visualize data. And so this is another way that we often look at genetic differences or just differences in viruses or bacteria in their phenotypes or, you know, this is a very generic way of showing data that lots of different scientific fields use. And so this is called a distance matrix. And this is essentially what that WHO analysis is doing, where you have a strain, this is your candidate strain, and you're comparing that strain to itself. Then you're comparing that strain to different variants, and you're seeing how distinct they are. And so you can see that this has one mutation, two mutations, three mutations. And so it starts out completely 100% similar to itself, of course, by definition. And then as you add in mutations, you add in differences, and you get this distance matrix where it's really high similarity down to low similarity. In these matrices, you line up the different strains on the y-axis and the same strains on the x-axis and then you just look at the, the differences between them. So the reason why you get ones down the middle of a distance matrix is that all of these types are identical to each other because you're comparing the same thing to each other. And then you can see that you get this sort of decay pattern of the scores off of the center of the, the matrix. Um, that is indicating that you know this guy is similar to that guy and is more different to that guy. So if you go across this portion of the, the matrix. Um, so this is just a way to, to visualize the types of data that they're collecting. So what they would do is if this is the strain spreading around North America this year, and they have strains A, B, and C, C is the most distinct from the current strain. And so they would choose C and they would make a vaccine for that strain C. And that's all that this slide is saying. So like I said, this process, you know, is pretty good. It ends up yielding pretty effective flu vaccines, but sometimes we get it wrong. And so is there a way that we can inform our prediction that's not just based on how unique a strain is compared to uh, the one that's, that's circulating this year, um, but actually other information to inform the evolution, evolutionary dynamics of the virus in order to be able to better pinpoint which one is the one that's going to emerge the following year. And so that's what we're talking about here. There's a lot of different people that are doing this work. I'm going to talk about one paper that is somewhat old, but is one of the first and most significant steps to uh, making these better evolutionary informed forecasts for the influenza strain. And I am going to brutalize these names, so I should have practiced it before the lecture. Sorry. We'll say Luxa and Lasig. Uh, I'm sorry for my poor pronunciation. Uh, but these researchers created a strategy and a mathematical framework in order to better predict flu evolution and better predict which strain we should make a vaccine for. I am not going to show you the equations. The equations are very complicated and advanced, but I'm going to sort of talk about what they put, what information they put into the mathematical model, how that information relates to uh, mathematical models that we've actually used in this class, and and so it'll give you a better idea of you know how you can make more informed forecasts for what flu strain will dominate next year. Okay, so here is just a sort of picture describing what these researchers are doing. And so basically what they're doing is they're taking, you know, phylogenetic information about the influenza strains that are circulating in a given year. And so there's lots of, there's the blue type, there's the green type, and then there's the purple type. And in their model, they're just incorporating information on a single gene. This is just that HA gene that we've talked a lot about. And they are looking at 
the HA gene and seeing where does this HA gene have mutations. And so this is the sort of outer region of the protein. This is the area in which uh, the immune system recognizes the protein. And so mutations in this area may interfere with the immune system's recognition of the protein. And so these are actually advantageous mutations for the virus because they help avoid uh, getting targeted by the immune system. So basically people have immunity to past strains. And so these unique mutations might help the strain evade the immune system and, and dominate the following year. Then they're also looking at other mutations. So this is a protein that's embedded in the outer membrane of the virus. In this core section, it's, it's highlighted in, the, in this yellow coloration. That structure is really important for stabilizing the protein and keeping it embedded within that membrane. And so it's thought that mutations in this part of the protein are really bad for influenza, that it's already optimized the structure of HA, and so any additional mutations in, the, in this protein in that region would interfere with the protein structure and, and would be very deleterious. So what they're taking in is information on mutations that they think are going to be beneficial and then mutations that they think are going to be deleterious. And so they can take in that information, that's on, that's on natural selection, and they can say, okay, we think that all of these unique epitope mutations are going to help this strain avoid immune systems by, by humans. That's these. So that's going to increase the ability of that strain to spread. Whereas these mutations in here, they randomly arose and they're really bad and they're going to interfere with this strain's ability to spread. And so what the model is doing is it's taking in this information on beneficial mutations, deleterious mutations, and making a prediction of what the frequency of these blue strains will be in the following year. And so you can see that there's lots of blue strains this year, fewer green strains and fewer purple strains, but the prediction is that these blue ones are gonna decline, these green ones are gonna grow, and these purple ones are gonna basically, I think, stay about the same or maybe increase a little bit. And so that's, that's what the model's doing. The third bit of information that the model is taking in is the strain abundance this year. And so this is a little bit counterintuitive. Basically what they're doing, they're looking at not the dominant strain that year, they're looking at all of the rare strains and saying, okay, among these rare ones, which one is likely to take over the following year? You know, these ones are the ones that are candidates for the one that will take over the next year. And so among those strains, if they all have the same number of genetic differences from that main dominant strain that's, that's uh, occurring this year, and if they have the same number of deleterious mutations in the core of their protein, then what will matter to determining which one takes over is not about their genetics, but is just about their current frequency around the world. And so if you have, if you have slightly more viral particles then that one is likely to take off. I think that makes sense. But so if they're all genetically identical to each other, or they have you know, the same number of beneficial mutations and deleterious mutations, the viral strain that's likely to take off is the one that has a slight numerical edge on the other ones. Okay, so let me now in text in the, in the slide go over the three types of information that is being incorporated into this model to make predictions about what strain will, will dominate the following year. And so that is beneficial epitope mutations. This is essentially the information that the WHO is incorporating into their selection. They're saying, okay, which one has the most distinct epitope and that's the one that's gonna dominate the next year. And so that's, this is just uh, another way of doing that, is actually looking at the genetic mutations that are occurring in the epitope, counting up the number of those genetic mutations, and saying which one is more distinct from the, the one that's uh, dominating this year. The next 
step though is that they also take into information on deleterious mutations. And so that's something that the WHO doesn't consider at all. But basically, if you get these good epitope mutations in a genome, in a gene that has deleterious mutations, well, those deleterious mutations are going to put the brakes on and slow down the spread of that, that virus. Um, and so this model takes account of that effect as well. And the last thing is that what we talked about, the frequency of the strain. So these are all rare strains, but some of them have a slightly larger number of variants. Um, they're not spreading yet in the human population at a, at a massive way. And so people are not in a, in a, in a worldwide way developing immunity. And so if there's one that is just slightly more abundant than the other ones, that one is likely to take over. This is just sort of me playing around with this, this picture and this image to, to sort of really cement ideas of what's going on here and how their modeling is, is actually working. And so in this figure, they gave us, you know, this cartoon of mutations, beneficial deleterious mutations. And so I've just made uh, hypothetical variants of HA for the green category and the purple category to explain why they have a different dynamic than the blue. The blue is shrinking over time, whereas the purple and green are gaining and the green are gaining a lot. And so what I've done here is I've just, you know, I said, okay, well, it has the same number of deleterious mutations, but now it has lots and lots of new epitope mutations. And so that's why green is dominating here because it is so unique that no human has immunity to it yet. And then for this purple one, um, you can imagine that, well, it's doing a little bit better than the blue and it's spreading because it has gotten rid of these deleterious mutations. And so it's more free to spread. And so its, it's frequency is increasing in this year uh, compared to the blue. So that's just a hypothetical, but I hope it helps you look, you know, imagine these genetic variations and how they translate to changes in frequency in the next year. Okay. So one more thing that I want to do on this model is uh, relate these variables back to those equations that we had on growth rate, so exponential growth rate, and then we even did some math and we put together multiple exponential growth rate equations in order to make an equation where we could predict the frequency of an evolved genotype compared to its ancestral genotype or the frequency of you know, genotype A versus genotype B. And so what I want to say is that these two, the beneficial epitope mutations and the deleterious structural mutations, what they're both influencing is R. So the black ones are enhancing R, the red ones are uh, decreasing R. And so together they have beneficial and deleterious effects and that augments this variable R. R is you know, what we use to calculate the doubling time. And then we use that doubling time um, in this equation. We have the doubling time of one strain, and we have the doubling time of another strain. That's the same with down here. And that helps us uh, predict what the frequency of future strains will be. And so if a strain has lots of beneficial mutations, then in none of these deleterious mutations, it'll have a higher R, it'll have a shorter doubling time, and this shorter doubling time here will equal uh, increase in the frequency of that strain. Um, and so that's, that's how you know, they're using these population genetic variables in order to predict what strain is going to dominate the next year. And of course, the frequency at time point zero is in our, our equation. So we, we have that here. And you know, given that frequency and how fast these two things grow relative to each other, then you get a final uh, frequency of the evolved type. And so the LUXA and LASIGS model incorporates that information as well, just as we have that information in our population genetic model too. So yeah, so just a little bit more in thinking about HA evolution. So I want to sort of use this as a point of reference to teach a lesson about the complications of calculating DNDS ratios. Uh, DNDS ratios are used widely and they are informative, uh, but there are some, some issues with them. And one of the issues is you have to think carefully about the particular DNA or RNA sequences that you are analyzing. 
And the reason why I point this out, especially now, is that often you'll say, okay, what's the DNDS ratio for an entire genome? Uh, well, that mixes together a lot of different proteins that some proteins might be experiencing positive selection and some proteins might be experiencing negative selection. Often we think we're safe if we just look at a DNDS ratio for a given protein. But actually, if we were to calculate a DNDS ratio on HA, we would find that we would get a value of something close to one, but we know that there's positive selection happening on the epitope region of the protein, and there's negative selection happening on the structural part of the protein or purifying selection. And so this part of the protein is experiencing lots and lots of ends, and this part of the protein's getting rid of the ends. And so if you calculate a DNDS ratio across the entire protein, then you're going to get an estimate of about one. But actually, we know that selection is just happening strongly. It's not evolving neutrally, um, but just in, in counter directions in different regions of the protein. So the solution to this is if you know about different functional regions of the protein, you only look at selection that's happening in that functional region. You only calculate the DNDS ratio in that subregion of the protein. Okay, and just to sort of um, get back to the model and predicting um, which strain is likely to dominate the next year, here's just a, a simple question. If you get this right, then you know that you're, you're thinking about the model correctly. Okay, so for three different reasons, you should have chosen B. The reason is, is that B has a lot of unique epitope mutations. It doesn't have very many structural mutations. And it also uh, starts out this year's frequency at about 8%, which is greater than 2% and greater than 5%. Uh, for so, so for all three of those reasons, you should have picked B. Okay, so what they can do with this model is they can use old data. They can use like 1989's data and then make a prediction for 1990. And then we know which strain actually dominated in 1990. And so this gives us a way of being able to test, you know, if we change the criteria in order to predict flu the next year, would this model be better than what actually happened and what the WHO predicted using their techniques? So we find that, in fact, their model works really well. It's 97% accurate on what strains will increase in frequency the following year, and it's 76% accurate in predicting which strains will decline in the future, and that this is above and beyond what the WHO technique is able to do. Okay, so we're going to wrap up this lecture. The seasonal flu summary is seasonal flu is extremely infectious. We sort of treat it as if it's not that dangerous because, you know, we get it each year and a lot of people get immunity to it and it doesn't seem that bad, but it actually does cause a lot of mortality around the world. And new strains could cause a pandemic like, we, like we're seeing with coronavirus. The evolutionary pattern of the strain indicates strong selection and that's being driven by the human immune system developing um, ability to suppress the virus and then the virus mutating in ways that allow it to avoid the immune system. And so that new virus spreads and that keeps happening from one year to the next, giving you that really strong imbalanced phylogeny. And we can use our understanding of how influenza evolves from one year to the next to make population genetic models that better pre predict what strain will dominate in the next year and so we can create better vaccines. So, cool. Thank you guys very much. And I will see you guys on Thursday. We're going to talk about HIV. So, thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.